episode of the show before the show podcast, the official podcast of minor league baseball. We are jam packed this week. Tyler Mon, Benjamin Hill, Sam Dykstra, gents, what's going on? How are you? I'm good. I'm good, Tyler. Yeah, I uh, I just got back from Tennessee yesterday. I uh, was down there to cover the Nashville Sounds, which you'll hear plenty of later in the episode, so I don't want to talk about it too much. I was also in Kingsport uh, for the Appalachian League All-Star Game. Had a lot of fun uh, there with Tim McMaster and Stephen Schock uh, in the booth with those two good dudes. Um, a lot of fun to cover the Appy League as it's now in its third year transitioning to a collegiate woodbat league, uh, but seems to be doing really well. So those are my last couple of days. Ben, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing all right. Spent last uh, last week in Massachusetts. Uh, took some vacation time. I learned from Sam that you shouldn't call quaint Western Massachusetts uh, towns. You should not refer to them as villages. Sam got very upset. threw that around. Like, yeah, huh. I'm in a pinch. Yeah, like... I think Sam thought it was condescending or my big city ways was like looking at his quaint little villages he grew up in. I meant it as a positive thing, but Sam. Plus, said, like Don't... on the East Coast, aren't there things that are actually incorporated as villages, Sam? Yes, and this is not one of them. I so when so. there is a hard definition. See, yeah, you can see Sam gets a little just, testy when it comes up. My eyes through the back really of this podcast. like that. They're gonna freeze that way, Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow, yeah, I'm back in the uh, New York groove this week and next week, as I've talked about in the past, uh, hitting the road again. So real quick, uh, Tuesday, August first, Syracuse Mets. Wednesday, August second, Binghamton Rumble Ponies. Thursday, August third, Scranton Wilkesbury Rail Riders. And Friday, August fourth, the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs playing as the Scrapple. So I'll be on the road. Hope to see people out there and uh, I'll talk to you guys next week. Yeah. Uh, for somewhere on the road, most likely. That sounds pretty great. Uh, well, we have no time to waste on this week's episode of the show before the show podcast. Last week, we give you a jam packed episode and this week we are back with the same and more. Uh, let's kick things off, Ben, with uh, segment number one. As uh, Sam noted, a little while later on, we're going to hear about Nashville. Uh, but we got a very cool story to talk about before that. Yeah, we've got um, the director, Lauren Meyer, of a movie, The Other Boys of Summer, which is all about the Negro Leagues and Negro League players, and it's almost entirely in their own words based on interviews that she did with the players. Uh, it is now uh, on a tour of minor league ballparks, 12 minor league cities throughout this, the summer. Uh, we get into those tour date uh, itineraries, uh, the process behind the movie, the Negro Leagues in general. Uh, there's a whole lot to discuss. So now we're going to go to director Lauren Meyer to talk about her movie, The Other Boys of Summer. Well, here on the show before the show podcast, we talk a lot about uh, ballpark road trips, ballpark tours, my own minor league ballpark visits. Sam Dykster recently back from Nashville uh, doing the pipeline game of the month. Tyler. Tyler Mon, obviously a uh, international traveler, uh, most notably recently with the WBC. Um, but today we have a guest who's in the midst of her own minor league ballpark tour, uh, a barnstorming tour, if you will, uh, showing her movie, which she directed at 12 minor league ballparks uh, throughout the country. Lauren Meyer, the director of The Other Boys of Summer, a film, a documentary about Negro League baseball players, the experiences they had and it's all pretty much in their own words it's a really interesting film and you might have a chance to see it at a ballpark near you lauren thanks so much for being here with us my pleasure so this movie uh other boys of summer uh, i got a chance to watch it just yesterday and um in watching it i was struck with you know that bittersweet feeling of 
oh, I think he has passed away when you're talking to this player. And, oh, I think he has as well. And then looking into it, I realized, wow, you did interviews with these players over a long period of time. And uh, it was so fortunate for you for you to be able to speak with them and get, um, you know, get this on film in their own words. So for you, this movie was a, a long journey. And if you could just tell us, you know, how it came about, how you started working on it and, uh, you know, how you went about meeting all these former players and uh, putting it all together. Absolutely. It was 100% a passion project. And my goal was to have the opportunity to let the players tell their own stories. So I had an idea that I wanted to learn more about the Negro Leagues. And I really specifically wanted to hear what it was like from the players to pursue their dreams in spite of their circumstances. Because growing up, you learn in school a little bit about racism and segregation. And you, you know, today it's in the news all the time. But to hear from people who live through it first person, I didn't want to speak to their experience. I wanted them to be able to share their experiences. And so I started interviewing players in 2007. And I recognized at that point in time that the majority of the Negro League baseball players had already passed away. So the clock was ticking for, for me to be able to hear their stories first person. It was it was like, you, you better get out there and start meeting players and hearing their stories now, or you'll miss that opportunity. So that was really the impetus to, to rather than think about a project, as we all have great ideas and things we want to pursue. And then when the time comes, you recognize, if I don't do this now, we're going to lose these stories forever. So I set out to contact as many players as I could. And as an independent filmmaker, it was also restricted by budget. So you know, you try and reach these players. And there were a couple of players I would have loved to talk to, but I just literally didn't have the funding to be able to travel to, there were two or three who would have been great to have included, but their stories are still relayed through the players who I did have the chance to speak to. Yeah. One of the things that stood out to me from the documentary was your ability through these players to tell the story of what happened to the Negro Leagues after Jackie Robinson signed with the Dodgers. Um, I think a lot of history kind of gets lost from that period in terms of, you know, Jackie Robinson opened the gate, but it wasn't a floodgates coming after that. It, it, there were still the Negro Leagues existing. And um, but, you know, they they kind of petered out over time as as more and more African-American players were signing in the majors. And it was a little bit more difficult for the Negro Leagues to survive. What stood out to you from that, hearing those stories of what happened after Jackie signed? Yeah, absolutely. That was one of the most fascinating parts. There are so many different elements that were just fascinating to me. But when the players started talking about what happened when Jackie signed, they were very candid. And they spoke about, number one, Jackie not being the best player at the time. Nobody was taking anything away from Jackie. They respected him and he was an absolutely amazing athlete. They all said that. But at the time, he was selected because of the overall character of who he was and what he could endure and handle and represent. And so hearing candidly from the players themselves, I was shocked the first time I heard, oh, you know, Jackie wasn't the best ball player at that moment in time, but he was the right man for the job. And when they continued to explain how, when Jackie broke the color barrier, when he crossed over into MLB, when they began to explain how that impacted the Negro Leagues and communities and businesses in these Negro League cities, that was really eye-opening to hear how they all understood the sacrifice that they need to make for the greater good. And they were not angry or bitter about that, but I was surprised to hear them talk about 
Well, when Jackie broke into MLB and was playing with the Dodgers, a lot of us lost our jobs because the Negro Leagues began to fold. Because if you look at it, and this is probably something many of the listeners have heard a little bit about before, but if you think in terms of you take the best players off of every team, you're not taking the whole team, you're not even often taking two players, but you're taking the stars. Once you take those stars away, it's harder to generate the fan base. And if the stars are playing or often sitting on the bench for, for MLB teams, that's where those fans are going to go and want to watch their favorite players play. And so it definitely had uh, Jackie breaking the color barrier had a negative impact in that respect. But in the grand scheme of things, it was something that was obviously the, the positives outweighed the negatives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the other bits the documentary really touches on too is uh, in some of the transitioning from the Negro leagues to the majors or even in the minors in some cases playing in, in Texas or uh, other places around the country, some of these ballplayers hadn't experienced segregation in that way. I mean, finding out, you know, there's some anecdotes in there about finding out that there were separate bathrooms uh, listed for for white folks. And at the time, it said colored uh, on one side. You know, what did you learn about what it was like for them to join uh, the, the major leagues, the minor leagues outside of the Negro leagues and have that be an educational experience of what America was in the 40s, 50s and 60s? Sure. It was very interesting to be able to interview players who were from the South as well as players who were from the North. So the guys who grew up in the South, that's what they knew. So to them, that's all they knew. So it wasn't surprising. They didn't even expect things to be different. John Miles talks about he never imagined the day blacks and whites would play together because he grew up in Texas. And it just didn't even occur to him because it was a different time. But then you've got a player like Jim Robinson, and Jim ultimately did get a chance in Major League Baseball, but he started playing in Harlem and he played throughout high school. And then he played, he actually went to college on a baseball scholarship that was, was by the assistance of Roy Campanella. So Jim used to go to the Harlem Y. He and his buddies would hang out there. And at the time you'd have Campanella and Jackie Robinson, who also would go to the Y and, you know, spend time with the kids. And when Jim was finishing high school, Campy said to him, so Jimmy, what, what, are, you, what are your plans next? Are you going to go to college? And Jim, who was an intelligent kid, but he, he was just like, oh, I don't really know if that, you know, I don't, I don't know that I can do that, like the financially. And it just wasn't something he saw as an opportunity. And Campy said to him, well, if you're interested, I've got a cousin who, is a, is work, who works down in North Carolina. And if you're really serious and you want to go to college, I can see if I can help you out if, if you're looking to play baseball because my cousin's down there and we can see if we can help help you get there. And Jim was shocked and excited and, and that was an opportunity he never imagined. So he said, absolutely, I'd love to do that. And the point of the story is Jim had never been outside of New York before. So on his first trip to North Carolina, that was his first experience with with segregation. And he talks candidly in the film about, you know, I I took the train from New York to North Carolina and we had to change trains in Washington, DC. And he says how he he had to get out of one car and go and sit in the back of the other car uh, in the back of the train. And he, he just candidly says, yeah, I just, I just thought that was stupid. Like he didn't know that that's what happened. And when he got down to North Carolina for school, he was down in, in Greensboro and everything was segregated. And that was very, 
a very eye-opening experience because he was not used to having places where he was not safe to go to. Lauren, when you uh, get a chance to tell these stories, there are so many different angles that you can come at it from. And I think um, for so many baseball fans, there is a, a casual feeling of, oh, well, Jackie Robinson integrated baseball and it was a it was a great story and it's a fairy tale from then forward. And that's not really the case. And you mentioned uh, how there were a lot of players who probably could have had that job. Uh, but Jackie Robinson was taken in addition for, uh, in addition to his baseball skills for what else he was able to do, uh, as an athlete and as a figurehead of the movement. Um, for so long, I read Satchel Paige's autobiography last year. And for so long, the conversation was, well, when baseball integrates, it's going to be Satchel Paige who does it. Uh, I would imagine there were probably a lot of other players who you heard about, who maybe you didn't know much about, uh, prior to this project who people thought, oh, that guy's going to get a chance, or this guy should have gotten a chance. What are some of those stories? that stick with you about players who maybe never got that opportunity or in the case of somebody like Satchel Paige got that opportunity way later in life than people probably would have expected. The most surprising story to me came from Monty Irvin. So when I met Monty and was interviewing him, he shared the story with me that he actually had been scouted by Branch Rickey and talked to about integrating baseball. And at the time he said, you know, they were talking with him and he was being considered as as potentially that that guy. And World War II was happening and he had to serve in the military and went over to Europe. And when he came back from the war, he basically needed a little bit more time to get back into shape and mentally coming back, you know, from from being in battle and, and being and serving for the country over in Europe, you know, as part of that. Monty said, you know, when he came back, he needed a little bit more time. So the timing wasn't right at that point. And that's when Monty talks about Branch Rickey's sign, Jackie Robinson. And Monty was not resentful of that at all. He looked at that as it created an opportunity for Monty to be able to ultimately play for the Giants and not have all that responsibility on his shoulders. So as much as, you know, history could have been very different, but Monty speaks so kindly of what Jackie did for an entire country and how that enabled him probably to play with a little less stress. And of course, by the time Monty then gets to the Giants, he's much older. So he's past his prime. So he did miss the best years of his baseball career, not playing with the Giants. But at the same time, when he did get that opportunity, he got to play in an environment that was a little bit easier for him than it would have been had he signed as the first black player with Brooklyn. You also got a chance uh, to talk, and there are so many fascinating stories and so many fascinating angles uh, to tell the story of the Negro Leagues, but you got a chance to talk to Minnie Mignoso as well, and that's a, a player who, you know, inducted into the Hall of Fame and a guy who had an incredible career. I did not realize this, but uh, Minnie Mignoso actually played a couple of games as a pinch hitter for the White Sox in 1980 when he was 56 years old. Uh, and yep. not only that, but, you know, was able to to throw out a, a couple of hits as well uh, late in his career. Um, when you talk to someone like that, his story is so different because he was born in Cuba, uh, but played in the Negro Leagues. And he was, you know, he tells a story about, um, you know, he would hear racial abuse 
from the dugouts of opposing teams uh, when he was playing in integrated games. And that's so fascinating because uh, not being an African-American, but being someone who plays in that league and therefore is sort of pulled into the undercurrent of everything horrible that those players had to deal with. What was it like talking to him about that experience? Somebody who came from such a different background and yet endured the same stuff as, as black American players. Sure. So many grew up in Cuba. He was born in a little town, a little village. He told me that they had dirt floors in his home. So if you think about sugarcane farms, I believe it would have been and living, you know, with his family in this very humble beginning, but he had this passion for baseball. He loved baseball. He always played. He dreamt of coming to America. And when he got here, he, he played with the New York Cubans and he was just, a, he was a star and he was a personality and he was a joy to be around. And so when he was playing in the Negro Leagues, you know, he was able to, I think, embrace that, that passion and be around other people who accepted him, didn't judge him based on his color on his teams. But he did, he was one of the earliest people to cross the color barrier being somebody of color coming into Major League Baseball. So he first got drafted by or signed by the Cleveland Indians. And then he went to the White Sox and then back to the Indians and back to the White Sox. And he was just always a fan favorite because he loved the game, played the game with the passion. And he told me stories about he'd be in the batter's box and he'd hear from the dugout from, from one of the managers. And he used the, you know, the N-word for it, which I won't, but he said, hit that guy in the head. And Minnie got hit in the head many times. He said, you know, what was interesting to him, and Minnie would always tell the story and be laughing and, and making light of it, even though it's very serious, was he's in the batter's box being yelled that they should hit him in the head. They hit him in the head. He goes to the hospital. That same manager went and visited him in the hospital and acted like they were friends. So once they got off the field, he didn't face that same type of discrimination within the, the opponents, but on the field, it was really harsh. And he said he, he could be sitting in the lobby of the hotel where they're staying it, when he was able to stay at the same hotel. And the manager who's calling him the N-word walks by and says hello to him and sits down and has a conversation with him. But when they're out in public competing on the baseball field, he took so much abuse. And But Minnie, Minnie was just so full of vibrance. And I don't know that the man ever stopped smiling. Like I had such a great time meeting him. The first time I met him, it was at a Negro League conference and he was being honored. And I talked to him a little bit. And then I was funny, funny, quick story. So it was in Atlantic City and the conference was, you know, in the convention center and whatnot. And then the guys are hanging out at the bar in the evening, just around, you know, happy hour time or whatnot. And I figure I'm going to walk through, just say hello to some of the guys who I knew. I didn't want to impose on their time together. So I walk through and I see Pedro Sierra, who I had interviewed earlier that day. And I just said hello. And I keep walking. And Minnie's like, whoa, 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 wait, where are you going? And I said, oh, I just want to say hello. I don't want to take up your time. You guys don't get to see each other that much. And he's just like, no, no, no. Are you going to come with us? And I don't know what Minnie's talking about. So I'm like, no, no, you guys are good. Like, have fun. <laughs> it's like your friends. You never get to see each other. He's like, no, no, you'll come with us. I was like, where are we going? He said, we're, go we're going dancing. You're coming with us. And so lo and behold, I ended up being invited by Minnie Minoso to go dancing at a Cuban place. <laughs> and that's just, you know, who Minnie was. I, di I didn't want to impose on him, but he wanted to invite everybody in. He liked having people around and liked just, just liked people. 
I have to point out he in that final year with the White Sox, he did go 0 for 2 at 56 years old. His final major league hit was at 52 years old uh, in 1976. <laughs> he did get a hit uh, for the White Sox. He singled as a 52 year old in Major League Baseball. Um, Lauren, when you uh, get to tell those stories, as Sam noted about the the Negro Leagues and sort of their last gasp era after the integration of major league baseball and on through, um, you know, there's, uh, guys who played in the Negro leagues until the late fifties. And I think the average baseball fan probably doesn't realize that the Negro leagues were around for over a decade after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. There is, uh, an era in the game of baseball in which, yes, obviously the integration of major league baseball was a huge and pivotal moment, but losing the Negro leagues was something that like you touched on earlier, you know, that weighed pretty heavily on black communities. And there were um, franchises, you know, Effa Manley is probably the most famous person who really advocated for, uh, Hey, these, we need to be treated with respect as franchises. If you're going to be poaching our players, we deserve compensation for that. These are still businesses that should be operating uh, under the structure of, you know, fair play and compensation. Those last several years, as the Negro Leagues, I guess, fought to continue to exist, but also probably saw the writing on the wall. What was it like hearing the stories from players about uh, knowing that, you know, their days might be numbered playing in those leagues and maybe they weren't going to be able to go on and play uh, in the major leagues following that time? Well, it varied a lot for different players. So you had somebody like Jim Robinson, who really played in the 50s, and he played after graduating from college. So he was continuing to play in the Negro Leagues, but had the opportunity. He got called up or signed by the Cardinals, I believe. And But he was riding the bench there. He was playing single A. They weren't giving him a chance. They, they signed him because he was a good ball player, but they weren't giving him a chance to play. So he reached back out to the Negro Leagues and, and a former manager of his and said, you know, here's what's going on. I'm just not getting a chance to play. And so he was given the opportunity. They said, well, how would you like to come back to the Monarchs? Jim left Major League Baseball at the minor league level where he was, you know, where he was spending time and went back to the Monarchs. And he ended up playing, I think it was two seasons with the Monarchs. He played shortstop. He played in the East-West Classic. And, and he was somebody who recognized where that was going. He, he realized that he wasn't going to have a baseball career. So after those, those couple of years, he came back to New York and got a job outside of baseball. But there were other guys who didn't want to do anything outside of baseball. And so they ended up going to Canada and playing in leagues up in Canada where they were welcome. They went down to Mexico and played where nobody cared what color they were. And so they continued to get to play. They got treated like first-class citizens instead of third or fourth-class citizens. And so the experience was different for all different players. So there were some guys who really had a hard time when their what they were passionate about playing was crumbling and, and they were going to have to find other things to do. Whereas other guys, when I met them, looked back on it as some of the best times of their life in spite of everything they had to endure. Well, at the top of this interview, I mentioned, um, and the impetus for this, uh, for the timing of this interview, is that, Lauren, you're in the midst of a uh, minor league ballpark barnstorming tour. You've hit locations like Greenville in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, Montgomery and Birmingham, Alabama, have uh, the Bowie Bay Sox coming up on August 1st, Wilmington Blue Rocks on August 3rd, and then several more uh, later into the season, concluding with Jacksonville. Um how has this gone so far when fans show up to a minor league ballpark uh, 
uh, and see this movie, you know, what's the basic setup and, um, you know, what do they seem to take away from it? And, um, you know, what, what's your experience been on the road? The experience has been pretty phenomenal so far. Each city and each club is very different and we've got different audiences and, and the way the film and panel discussion is being utilized varies a little bit, which I can touch on. But what makes things different is the other boys of summer, the power behind it is number one, enabling the players themselves to tell the stories. Whereas so many other projects rely very heavily on narration and it's a history lesson, which is important. But the other boys of summer, what makes it special and unique is that we've got a phenomenal iconic narrator of Miss Cicely Tyson. It was one of her last projects she did before passing away. But her narration really is a way to link the segments of the players telling the story. So the, the people who attend our programs, what they love about it is they're having a chance to hear from the players themselves. So we've had people of all ages, all races, every religion I can imagine has probably sat in the audience and watched the film. And then in each, in each location, things are a little different when it comes time for a panel discussion or a Q&A session. For example, you know, we, we started in Greenville and we had players who played on their local Negro League team in the 50s. Who they, you know, one of the players played on the, the Black Spinners. And so he shared his experience. We had somebody from a different generation who integrated baseball at the high school level in that area. So it's very local to Greenville. But then you go down to Montgomery and we had people who work for, you know, Alabama State University and the Equal Justice Initiative and the Legacy Museum. And so we're bringing in local communities together. So that's what's really fun about it. And some before a game, other, other times we're doing things that are on non-game days so that it gives the, the baseball team also a chance to show the community and engage with the community on something that's not just a baseball game. So it's been really great in that respect. Well, like I said, uh, the Bowie Bay Sox and Wilmington Blue Rocks coming up soon uh, on the uh, on the movie tour schedule, uh, August 1st in Bowie, August 3rd in Wilmington. Uh, to learn more about the movie, you can go to theotherboysofsummer.com. Also check out that uh, minor league ballpark itinerary. Uh, Lauren Meyer, the director of The Other Boys of Summer, uh, thanks so much for joining us on the show before the show podcast. Thank you, guys. It was great talking with you. Well, a huge thanks to uh, director Lauren Meyer for coming on the show this week. Um, It's such a cool initiative and such a cool project. And again, you can go to theotherboysofsummer.com. You can find the screening schedule there uh, and everything else. And um, let's move on. Talk about a little uh, baseball from the AAA level and the Nashville Sounds, a place with its very own uh, very jam-packed history uh, in Negro Leagues baseball, black baseball history, and also currently as the home of the Nashville Sounds. Uh, Sam was in Nashville recently. Fire away, Sam. Yeah, I was down there with our own Kelsey Hannigan for the MLB Pipeline Game of the Month. Um, as we've been doing these last few months, we've been trying to do a themed episode of the show before the show each month. We're running out of days here in July, so I thought turning this into a Nashville-themed episode after we talked to Lauren uh, would be the move. So, uh, coming up, you're going to hear me talking to Kelsey about the trip, about what stood out to us, about for First Horizon Park, our visit there. We have 
interviews with coaches and manager, the manager of the Nashville Sounds. Uh, and also you'll hear about a specialty beer uh, that you can find at First Horizon Park. So lots coming up about the trip. Here's me talking to Kelsey. I am Sam Dykstra. I am currently coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee. By the time you guys hear this, I will be back in New York. But for the time being, I am in Nashville, Tennessee, having just uh, seen and covered the MLB Pipeline Game of the Month from First Horizon Park uh, between the Nashville Sounds and the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp. I did not do it alone. So here by my side, guiding us through this episode will be Kelsey Hennigan. Kelsey, hi. Hello, friends. You were very happy to, to pull off the Jim Nance. You were just sitting on the Jim Nance. You, the man couldn't do March Madness this year, and you decided to take his intro. I mean, honestly, it just came to me. It's July Madness, I guess. <laughs> July Madness. Yeah, I mean, we're kind of in that stretch of the season now uh, where you know it, we're coming up on the trade deadline, as we've discussed. I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about that next week. But wanted to bring you something from the ballpark itself we cover minor league baseball week in and week out but we were at a game we covered it pretty comprehensively i i I gotta say starting with a ballpark tour of first horizon park uh, that was available uh, through the milb instagram stories i think we'll try to find another way to post that so you know on top of the ballpark guides that ben has been doing a tremendous job of leading and that is complete and you can go visit the nash nashville ballpark guide but we also had a tour of some of the things you want to see from First Horizon Park. Um, we also did interviews that were on Instagram. We also did stuff for future stories, and we'll tease that out in future episodes. But first, first things first, Kelsey, what were your impressions of First Horizon Park and just Nashville as a AAA town? Yeah, I mean, I've been to Nashville maybe eight or nine times um, just in the past 10 years. I have a best friend from college who grew up here. Um, But this is actually my first time going to a Sounds game. So it was really cool having that background of like the town and the city um, and knowing where the ballpark was and how that area is being built up and um, very developed. And now actually going into the stadium and seeing the fans and how engaged they were, you know, and it was really cool. There's like, you know, families and kids. And then there was also, you know, date night and like, you know, adults having fun at the bar. Like, so it was a good variety. Um, the stadium itself was built in 2015. It opened. Opened in, in 2015. 2015. Um, so it's relatively new. It's a beautiful ballpark. Uh, good concourses. You can walk the entire perimeter of the whole thing. You can, you know, have a seat and or stand and watch the game from anywhere along the um, the stadium so that's always great and then you can't talk about this ballpark without talking about the guitar shaped video board it's 4,000 square feet it's just massive and even parts like the um, the string pegs I believe is what it's called on the ends even those have little TVs on them so it's really cool yeah I mean it was really well done just seeing that thing in person I know Greer Stadium the former home of the sounds kind of made the guitar scoreboard famous but it's taken on a real 21st century vibe uh, here in its new home at First Horizon Park. Uh, you mentioned the 360 concourse. That's what always is going to stand out to me. I, I love that that exists. And I think that's even a bigger deal now with the pitch clock. We've had pitch clock in the minor leagues for a few years now. But it, I think people are learning at the major league level, hey, you need 
to get your snacks, get everything kind of quick because the game is moving. And in a place like Nashville, you can go to the bar in center field and watch the game and get your drinks and everything and still watch everything because it's so open. And I really enjoyed being, I mean, how many times did we take laps around the ballpark just trying to see stuff going on? Oh, definitely. And because that scoreboard is so massive, like you could easily see, you know, what the count was. You could see the exit velocity. You could see how many outs there were. Um, so it was great. The The views were perfect everywhere you walked. Yeah. And, and you mentioned the location too. It uh, It's not quite downtown. I won't say downtown. It's not like Charlotte where like downtown is enveloping everything around, but it's pretty easily accessible. I mean, how many scooters and bikes and things did we see around and parking seemed pretty easy. It's pretty easy to get to. Uh, so those are two of my favorite things about ballparks now is that they're being placed in accessible places and they're easy to see from everywhere in the ballpark. So I think that ticked a lot of the boxes um, here in Nashville. Uh, you might be wondering why we made this the game of the month. There were multiple reasons and one we'll get to here pretty quickly. Uh, but one I wanted to mention that is kind of on the tip of everybody's tongues in this town is the fact that major league ex expansion is something people are thinking about, obviously, and, and it's a favorite thought experiment for a lot of baseball fans of like, where could baseball expand at least at the major league level? Uh, and Nashville is something that comes up a lot. This city is exploding. I mean, how, how many cranes did we see in, in the city alone? Oh, so many. And like right next to the ballpark, they're building, building uh, apartment complexes. It's just like it's a city that's fast developing um, even in the past few years and just the past year even. It just keeps growing and more people are moving here. Yeah. And, and so you wonder at a point where Major League Baseball is ready to expand. And it's not. We're not talking about something that's going to happen in two years. The commissioner has been really clear about this, that uh, stadium situations need to be settled with the A's and the Rays uh, before expansion talk can begin. But, of course, when something is that wide open, your m mind is going to run wild. And Nashville is something that comes up a lot because this is a little bit of a, I don't want to say Major League desert, but people trying to find a major league identity here. I think there's a lot of Brewers fans just because of the connection between the sounds and the Brewers. And that's what it felt like here, but obviously a lot of Braves fans too. Yeah. That was something that I was impressed by. I mean, well, as you said, we'll touch on this a little bit later, but we were here for South Freelich's major league debut and he had just got called up from Nashville and there were multiple people watching that game. And it's hard to say if they're watching it because they followed Sal's career so far or because they're Brewers fans. But we saw a lot of people wearing Brewers apparel. Um, I also saw, you know, a Phillies jersey. We saw a Yankees t-shirt. Like, there's definitely a variety here. Um, and I think also the fact that this region of the South has a lot of different minor league teams, too, also brings in those major league affiliate fans as well. Yeah, and, and I don't want to downplay that either. Like, how much this felt like a Sounds town. I mean, we just went out on Broadway um, after the last game just, you know, to blow off some steam and, and to check out that area. I mean, it, you know, it's covered in the ballpark guide. Like, mm -hmm. you're coming to Nashville. Oh. You want to see uh, Broadway, especially you're coming from California. I'm coming from New York. Uh, just something to tick off the butt. But, like, when we were in a honky-tonk, a man was wearing a Sounds jersey. I love that. I love that this is a town that embraces its own minor league team. So we're not trying to be like, hey, Major League Baseball, come here. Because the, even if it doesn't, they still have a strong fan base uh, with the sounds. Now I want to circle back to what you were just talking about because you mentioned Sal Freelich. He was the draw for us, at least from a prospect side. There's, there's lots to cover here about the environment. We've already talked about that. Uh, and there's lots of reasons why we wanted to make this the MLB Pipeline Game of the Month. But from a prospect 
perspective, Sal Freelich, top 100 prospect, had thumb surgery back in April, missed two months, was just hitting his stride. I thought, okay, we're getting him at a good time. This is a time where he's productive, he's healthy. We're going to have tons to talk to him about. We even t- teased that last week on, on the show, saying, like, hey, we'll bring you a Sal Freelich interview. And then what happened, Kelsey? Um, and then I was sitting on the tarmac of a plane in Houston waiting to take off for Nashville, and I see a tweet that says, wake up, it's Sal Freelich time. And then I'm like, oh, no. I mean, and then so I send it to Sam, and then I go and double-check, and sure enough, Ken Rosenthal has it, so it has to be fact. And Ken, uh, Sal Freelich did, in fact, get called up to Milwaukee for his Major League debut, which is a very happy and exciting thing for him and his family. And um, there was a video, and his teammates are very exciting. But, like, on a very selfish small note, we were, you know, we wanted to see, like, one of the top prospects in baseball at this game. Obviously, it worked out best um, for Sal and everybody that he was not at this game. But it was just a, a funny turn of fate as we were heading to Nashville. Yeah, I mean, these are the dangers of minor league baseball, which we have learned year in and year out. Like, you try to plan for a certain player. Guys get days off. That kind of stuff happens. But the whole point of minor league baseball is to get to the next level. Um, until you get to Major League Baseball, you're trying to push to be somewhere else, to be at that next spot. Um, unless you're a Shohei or like Ronald Acuna Jr. Again, in the majors, like there's no all-galaxy team that they can go play in. Uh, but everybody else in the minor leagues, they're always trying to get above where they are. So if Sal Freelich hits a hot stretch like he had and looked healthy and the thumb was in, good, you know, in a good spot uh, – it was always a possibility that he was going to get the call. Now, I wish he had gotten the call on Sunday instead of Saturday even, so at least we could have seen him on Saturday because we were here for both games over the weekend. Uh, but still, like you said, worked out well for him. Happy for him to get that opportunity. And he's been productive early, doing exactly what he was doing here in Nashville, spraying the ball all over the park, hitting it not super hard, but with enough authority, hitting line drives, using his speed. Uh, and playing a really good outfield. I still wonder if they're going to use him in center field at some point. Um, I know Joey Weimer has been a really good defensive center fielder as a rookie and a fellow rookie and a guy who played with Sal Freelich here in Nashville last year. Um, but, you know, Sal Freelich gives the Brewers some options as they try to chase down an NL Central title and get back to the postseason. So, speaking of which, Sal Freelich was a topic of discussion, even if he wasn't here this week uh, or this weekend when we were. So we have some interviews here, and I'm going to start with this one with the manager of the Nashville Sounds, Rick Sweet. Now we're going to lead off with some questions about Sal Freelich. He's going to tell a story about the call-up of Sal Freelich. You want to paint the picture of what exactly happened? Because it was a, vi- uh, it was a video that went semi-viral in the way that call-up videos do now. This is, I mean, your specialty is social media, and this is becoming more and more of a thing of these call-up videos. Yeah, it's a pretty special moment. I mean, obviously in a player's life and in a manager's life, and the fact that they're now starting to, like, secretly film them so that we can all enjoy them at home. And they're all just always so special. And, you know, there's the one thing of having it be in the manager's office and to be one-on-one, and that's a really special moment. But for this one, um, Sal was in front of his teammates. He was just eating and sitting, you know, enjoying himself in the clubhouse. And uh, Rick came up and, like, Rick will touch on this a little bit about how, you know, he had one plan and a different plan and he had to just adapt. And it just ended up working out that he was just, you know, talking to the different players and saying who's ready to play, you know, make sure 
everyone's good and healthy. Um, and he's like, Sal, are you going to play? And he's like, of course I'm going to play. And he's like, well, you're going to play not here because you're getting called up. And it's just the whole room explodes. And like, it is a really special thing to see all the teammates because it's like, you know, yeah, you could say they're competition, but they're also, you know, brothers working together for this shared goal. So it's just a really special thing. And it was cool to hear Rick Sweet give his perspective on that. Yeah, so we're going to hear from Rick Sweet explaining that. We should also provide a little bit more detail. Rick Sweet, currently second among all active minor league coaches or managers in wins. I mean, he's been doing this for a long time. He's been doing this for a long time at the AAA level, going back to the early 90s. He's been with the Brewers for a number of years. So we're going to touch on all of that here with Rick Sweet. Well, Nashville manager Rick Sweet, thank you so much for joining us here in the MLB Pipeline Game of the Month. How are you doing? I'm doing outstanding. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. And we got to start with the news of the week <laughs> with Sal Freelich joining the Brewers. We got to see him hit last night and make a couple of outstanding outfield plays. You managed him for a few months, even going back to last year. What kind of player is Sal? Well, he, he's an energy player. He brings life and energy to the ballpark every day. Uh, that, that's why he is such a popular guy, both on the field and off the field. Is he's full of energy all the time. He's always going. He plays the game hard. He's what we call a, a baseball player. He, he's your true baseball player. Yeah, you, you love guys like that. Yeah, and one of the discussions about him leading to the call-up was the health of the thumb and coming off the surgery. What were you seeing the last few weeks that led well, to this? Well, when he first got back, you could see some weakness. He was hitting a lot of fly balls. He was a little slow with the bat. Uh, but that's just strength. That's just his hand strength. Uh, and, and the last week, it really started ramping up. You could see big time that, okay, he's getting on top of balls. He's hitting line drives. He's not a fly ball hitter. And that's what, what people have to understand. He's not going to hit a ton of home runs. But what he's going to do is he's going to get infield hits. He's going to hit line drives. Last game, uh, the one game with us, he had two doubles, which were just rockets in the gaps. And, and a solo home run right down the line. He had six RBIs. Uh, you know, so he, he's capable of hitting the long ball, but that's not his game. His game is wearing out a pitcher with, with walks, with, with 9, 10, 11, 12 pitch at bats. Uh, he, drive, he drives the other team crazy. Yeah, and I mean, we saw that in his debut last night. Right. Um, what was the reaction like in the clubhouse finding out how he did in that first game? Well, I think, I, I have to be honest, we were playing a game, right, obviously, of at the yeah. same time. Every time he had an at-bat, my, my uh, strength guy came, came walking down and he goes, here's his first at-bat. So I, <laughs> I saw every one of his at-bats. I, I saw the plays. You know, we had a couple guys on the bench that, that had their phones going watching the game. So... Uh, when Andrew Emmett came down, he said, here's his first at-bat. I knew he had a hit, but I didn't know how. Little little slap base hit, infield hit the other way because they were overplaying him, beat the shift. It's like, okay. So the next one, you know, another another line drive over the first base bag down the line. You know, typical, typical Freelick, you know, hard, on the ground, other way. Just driving the other team crazy. Yeah, you talked about him regaining strength from that thumb. I think a lot of fans don't understand what the role of a AAA manager is when a guy's getting called up to the majors. How much are you talking to Brewers Brass of, like, this guy's ready? Well, oh, we talk all the time. In fact, I just got off the phone with, with Tom Flanagan, our, our vice president that oversees what we do. Just heads up on what's going on. You know, trade den deadline's coming up. A lot of stuff going on in baseball right now. I talked to Tom at least once a day, if not sometimes two or three days. I, I brought my phone here with me. It's always <laughs> always on me. Uh, it, it's actually there with me during the game. 
I don't have I don't have the sound on it, but if I were to get a phone call, which I have occasionally, usually they call the trainer, but you know they'll send me a heads up. Hey, after the game, call me as soon as the game's over. We we got to move. So it's uh, it, it's it's common for me to get calls every day from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk about the art of that call. The the video of you telling Sal went a little viral over the weekend for the best of reasons. Yeah. Take us through that moment. Well, I think initially I wanted to do it in front of the whole team. Uh, but unfortunately, we had fireworks after the game, so uh, you know we had to wait. And some guys had gotten out already because for Sal, he's such a popular guy. I want the whole team to enjoy the moment. So I said, okay, we'll do it in my office, which we did with Lucas Ursig, and, and was was pretty cool scene also. Uh, but then I walked up and I saw Sal sitting at the table. And there were four, five, six guys around him, plus there were some other guys in the area. I thought, you know what, I, I told our video guy who who was the guy that videotaped him. We had this set up ahead of time. We had cameras in my office if we were going to do it there. So he, he grabbed his phone real quick and uh, said, all right, I'm ready to go. So I started going around because we have, we have some guys hurt right now. We have guys, Sal being one of them, he'd fouled a ball off his foot and he was kind of hobbled for the rest of the game. So I started checking with guys who was available to play tomorrow. And Sal just kept shoveling the food, sitting at the table. And and we had called some other people in, let them know something was going on. And finally I got to Sal, I said, Sal, you okay to play? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I'm okay to play. And then he kind of looked around I said, well, you'll be playing tomorrow. But I said, you won't be playing here. You'll be playing in Milwaukee. And that's what he just, you could see him sit back and, and, and I haven't seen the, the video yet, so I don't know. It's, it's very cool. Exactly it's exactly how, how you're describing it. But I yeah. could just see him sit back and I could see the guys in the club. They knew something was up, but they didn't know what for sure. And they, you know, he, he was congratulated for, I don't know how long after that. I just walked away. Once, once I get <laughs> out, yeah, I let the team have the fun. And it's, it's good for the whole team to have that feeling because it's such a good feeling. Right, yeah, especially at this level, it, yeah. it happens. I mean, dreams are made at AAA of guys going to the big leagues. That's what everybody wants to do. Everything everything I do here is to try to help players get to that, that, that next step to the big leagues, whether it's for the first time or the fifth time. It doesn't matter. Getting back to the big leagues is what everybody wants to do. Yeah, and you've managed AAA for multiple years now. How do you tailor <laughs> multiple uh, years? Multiple. Yeah, let's look not to, yeah. yeah. But uh, how do you tailor these call-ups, announcements to individual players and make fits, that work? It, it fits fits the time. Like I say, I went from wanting to do it in front of the whole team uh, to deciding, okay, I'll do it in my office to seeing, oh, this is perfect. Let's do it now. And within one minute, had the video guy, had the coaches come out, brought, brought some other guys from, from our eating area and and got it started. And we, we were off and running. It's just situations. I've done them in showers before. <laughs> Uh, I, I've done it in my office where there's 10 or 12 coaches, staff people uh, that were involved because we, we have so much time and, and energy and, and love invested in these players. Uh, it's just such an exciting, happy moment. You get to see it and say, okay, all this work I do, all this time I put in, all this, all this stuff that I, I try to help these guys with pays off and that's that's what it's all about yeah and you mentioned some of the places you've done it before you mentioned lucas erksic before any other memorable call announcements oh, I've, I've had uh you know I've, I've had a guy that that again is one of those guys that you're you're not sure he's going to get called up and and if he's ever going to make it and and again just just 
get in the table in the middle of the clubhouse. I have a voice that carries, uh, <laughs> and 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 try to find a guy in the clubhouse. Hey, let me have your attention. Everybody looks, get him there, and then bang, go ahead and say, you, you're going to the big leagues and leave and let it happen in the clubhouse. Guys get so excited when when they do stuff like that. Uh, the guy in the shower, uh, Ricky Stone, was was that was 50, 20 years ago, but. He had been to the big leagues. He hadn't been up in like 10, 12 years. And all of a sudden they needed, they needed a guy for, for just a week. But he had, he had pitched so much for us and done so much for us, they decided to recall him up. And so he, I was looking for him, and I went through the clubhouse. They said, oh, he's in the shower. So I said, all right, let's go. Everybody follow me. And, and everybody followed me into the shower. And he's got, he's got soap all over his hair. And all of a sudden he turns around and, and looks. He goes, what? You know, what the heck's going on? I said, I just wanted to see what a big leaguer looked like without clothes on. And the whole place erupted, you know, and he's just standing there like, so, you know, the situation kind of dictates how you do it or what you do. But I like involving as many of the players, his teammates that I can, because it makes it more exciting for them, too. And then they want to be the next guy. They'll work that much harder. Yeah, I can never get enough of those stories. And, and you've also worked in this brewer system for a long time, which is a system that prides itself on homegrown talent Without getting to the major leagues. What do you think defines the brewer system? I, I think I think the fact that we, we take care of our people. We draft good people, we bring them in, and they become part of the family. We really have a family situation here all the way through our whole organization. I mean, I still... I still text message with, with Woody and Burns and the guys that have been up there for a lot of years. I had Winker back back in the day when he was a kid with the Reds. So, you know, I, I, you know I've, I've had guys like that for a long time. But we have a family situation, and that starts at the top. It starts with ownership. You know, I, I'll, I'll tell you exactly how the Brewers are. One of the few organizations uh, during the pandemic, when everything shut down in 2020, when COVID hit and, and everybody was out of a job, we, we, didn't, we didn't work. The Milwaukee Brewers kept all of us on payroll. They paid all of us. We did everything with Zoom calls with our players and stuff. But one of the few organizations, everybody stayed on salary. A lot of organizations fired everybody. They just shut down their, their whole, knowing that they would, but, but all those people that worked in those organizations had no jobs, and the Milwaukee Brewers stepped up and and took care of everybody in the organization all the way down, stayed full time, and received our paychecks. That tells you what how the Milwaukee Brewers do things. Yeah, and right around this time, I mean, the Brewers are top of the NL Central, very much a part of the playoff discussion. We're closing in on the trade deadline. What is it like being a AAA manager around the trade deadline? I, I worry. Well, I don't worry, but I, I know every day I may go from a full roster to very, very short, which we do anyway. We, we go we go short players. I said freely cut. I wasn't sure I was going to get a replacement. They, they sent us a kid from AA. So, uh, you know, you never know what's going to happen. But uh, with, with the trade deadline, make sure I play the right people in the right positions because there's there's scouts in the stands looking at them wanting to see who they want to trade for or who they want to add into a trade to, to help us get better. Yeah, and you mentioned calling guys up from double A. I mean, 
How much are you paying attention to that Biloxi team in terms of guys who could be here soon? Because Churio's really hot right now. Black's really hot. Carol's really hot. There's oh, you mentioned group. the three names. Yeah. <laughs> the I three big ones. I had a conversation about all three of those guys with my boss. Are you saying something's around the corner? Or no, I'm, gonna... just, I'm just saying, I, hey, I, I got room for him. I'm ready for him. Uh, you know, we, we did a, a line change last year. You know, in hockey, they do a right. line change yeah. where we sent up four outfielders last year. All at the same time. We traded for Ruiz. We had uh, we, we had uh, 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 Weimer, Freelich, and Garrett yep. Mitchell. All of them showed up all within one day of each other. All four of them, and I got four of the best outfielders in the whole league all playing for us. So I'm trying to talk us into another line change here to get those three guys up. You just mentioned didn't come out of my mouth. No, no, you mentioned I, it. Trust me, I wanted uh, to see him here too. So. Yeah, I, you know, I would love to get him here and get him that much closer to the big leagues because. And like I say, we, we like to develop our players. Yeah, and we were talking before about what happens when you ship the guys to the next level. What do you do to introduce somebody to the clubhouse? And, and, oh, I, and it's very easy because usually we know them. Very, very seldom do we get somebody we don't know or have had before. Campbell just came up. He's been up once already this year. Yeah. Uh, so we, we know. I, I know Cherio. I know Carol. Uh, you know, I know these guys. Black, I don't know well, but I, I look forward to getting to know him. Yeah, I, I think you'll like like him once you get him to know him. Um, your illustrious minor league career, your second in active wins right now among managers. What are some of your favorite stops in the minor leagues uh, along the way? You know, I, 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 I have to say I was in Louisville for seven years. I really enjoyed Louisville. Uh, you know, I, I spent a short time other places, just, just one or two years. Uh, you know, as you're making A ball, double A, triple A, and going back and forth. I had three years in Tucson that were a lot of fun. I really enjoyed Tucson, but I'm at the, I'm at the top stop right now. I mean, Nashville, you can't beat this town. It's a great city, uh, great facility. This ballpark is, is major league all the way. Fan, the fan support is great, whether we win, lose, indifferent. They chant, they get into the games. There's no better place to be than right where I'm at here in Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah, and I know we're years away from this, but expansion is always kind of a buzzword, oh, yeah. and people yeah. talk about Nashville maybe being on that list. What makes it such a great baseball town? Uh, oh, I think I think it's a great sports town. I think if you look at if you look at the people who come out to the games here, they're into the game, they're into the sport, they're they're intelligent, they're they're people that know the game, uh, and that's not always true in the places you go. They 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 don't get into it like they do here. So I think I think just this city is a sports city. You you go around town, all they talk about it not all, but talk about sports. You go down to Broadway, you see all the people on the on the streets. They got they got Nashville uh, sports stuff on. Uh, they they love their city and they love being here. Plus all the people that come from outside. This is you know like. You know, you got Las Vegas out west. Well, you got Nash Vegas out out east. <laughs> and uh, we'll end on this one then. What are your What is the Rick Sweet guide to Nashville? What do you like about this place? Where are your kind of go to spots? Oh, uh, I, I not my go to spot is right here. I have to tell you, I spend twelve plus hours a day at right. the ballpark. Right. We get one day off a week. When I get my one day off a week, that's spent with my wife doing. We, we got a breakfast place we like to go to. We go out for a nice dinner. We enjoy our day together because we don't get that much time together during the season. All right. Well, Rick, thank you so much for joining us here on the Game of the Month, and best of luck the rest of the way with My sounds. pleasure. Thank you. All right. I Thanks to Rick Sweet for joining us. That was a, an interview that originally ran on Instagram Live, uh, but we wanted to present the audio to you because you didn't necessarily need to see him 
And plus, we wanted to share those stories. The fact that he just straight up told us about telling a guy who was going up to the big leagues in the shower and having his entire team around him was one of the highlights of the weekend by far. I mean, the fact that he just candidly said that, like, I just wanted to see a major leaguer naked. Like, it's just also just the perfect phrasing in, like, a little bit of, like, a, not a dad joke, but just, like, the, like, just the too cute to be perfect. And it just, it's great. Yeah, and it ties into what he was saying, too, about every call-up story is going to be different and you know what you can do with certain guys and what you can't or what some guys just need to be told the news straight and some guys, it should be a huge celebration. Uh, and nobody knows that better than Rick Sweet. So I'm really glad he got to share those stories with us. We're going to stick with the coaching staff here for our next interview. Uh, Sounds hitting coach Al LaBeouf uh, is going to talk to me about multitude of different things, his own hitting philosophy, um, what works in the modern game, what he trusts. But the reason I wanted to bring him on the show is, and again, we're going to talk about Sal Freyuk at the top, uh, just because he is the news of the week in this town, at least from a baseball perspective. Um, but Sal Freelick was one of the multiple players last year for the Brewers who would go to double-A, perform pretty well, get called up to triple-A, and then his strikeout rate went down. That isn't normal. Normally, you move up a level, and it becomes a little bit diff- more difficult to make contact. You strike out a little bit more. That's natural. That's the whole point of moving up is to be challenged. And yet, it happened with Joey Weimer. It happened with guys like Garrett Mitchell. There seems to be something with Al LaBeouf about teaching guys to strike out less, which is so important in this game, in which we're seeing strikeouts go up across the board. So I wanted to touch with him on that and get his answers behind it, and I think it was, it was really insightful. So here's me talking to Al LaBeouf. All right, uh, I, I want to start with you know the guy of the week with Sal Freelich. Uh, oh. How did he kind of push his way to Milwaukee, especially coming off the thumb surgery, and what was he showing you guys the last couple games before he got the call? Well, I think I – think most importantly, uh, you know, he had that thumb injury, right. and it. Sal's a hockey player playing baseball <laughs> is what he is, so he's kind of a tough kid, and uh, what ended up happening is that when he came back, he wasn't fully able to do, not not to play, he was able to play and do all that stuff, right. but the, in terms of his preparation, like his drill work and stuff like that. He wasn't able to do as much as he used to do. So that took some time, you know, for his thumb to heal. And uh, last, I'd say the last two weeks or so, he's got back to his, uh, you know, his exercises that he does in a cage before the game. And that's pretty much the reason why he had the success that he had. Yeah, I was going to say, we saw saw that last night. Yeah. Um, And for you, when you're talking to the organization and they're asking, like, do you think this guy's ready? What is major league readiness to you in a, in a hitter? Well, uh, to me, I mean, w- when you're talking about a young kid, the one thing they have to do, in my opinion, is they have to be able to command the strike zone. If they can command the strike zone, there's a pretty good chance they'll have success up there, if they're having success here. Because, uh, you know, I say it all the time. That's kind of been my mantra for the last 43 years. You're only as good as the pitches you swing at. You know what I mean? So the commanding of the zone, to me, when you watch a young player at this level, that pretty much dictates if he can handle the major league level. Because, like I said, it doesn't matter what kind of baseball you're playing. If you don't swing your strikes, you're yeah, going to be right, any good. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or if you expand the zone too yeah, much and stuff absolutely. like that. Yeah. And how do you improve that? How is that something you can work on um, at this level? Well, those are, there, there are different exercises that we do. And, uh, Basically, it just 
The good thing for our young players here is what we do really well, I think, as an organization is we get some very good quality uh, six-year free agents mm. that are, um, you know, they're like, I'll bring up Josh Van Meter. To, in my opinion, he's a professional hitter. So you, he got a chance to watch uh, Josh, and they talk in the clubhouse and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, coming up, you really don't have to. You come up swinging. All right, and uh, and uh, the one thing that I, that I kind of press upon young players is that the one one of the differences between a major league hitter and a minor league hitter is that a major league hitter doesn't swing too much. Hmm. Ma- uh, minor league hitters swing a lot, and that's the de- that's the definite that's the to me that's the determining factor if you can hit at the major league level because if you're swinging at average at everything tough to hit. They can command the ball up there pretty good. Right, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the reasons I want to talk to you because I was talking to somebody last year and it seemed like everybody who came here, their strikeout rate was going down. Yes. Like there was some fl- switch that was being flipped. Mm-hmm. What, what were you doing to get buy-in from those guys to, well, to make that happen? I mean, I just basically uh, the, some of the things that you have to do. First of all, in order to get buy-in from them, you have to ask them what they think is important. Mm. Okay, so in talking to the group and especially the young guys, and is that you basically just like, try to ex- ask them what their interpretation of a major league hitter is, okay? okay, and then work back from there. And that's, you know, something like I said, it's that it's not anything special that we do. It's I think it's more of a ability to allow the player to make his own assessment. Hmm. All right. Pick out the points that are important and let them choose what they think will help them. Because yeah. not everybody's the same. Right. You know what I mean? So, but that's kind of the the gist of it. You know what I mean? I don't want to reveal all my No, I, I'm not asking you to. No, yeah. I'm, kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah, because I was going to ask, like, how do you curtail it differently between a Sal Freelich who doesn't strike out very much mm-hmm. and a Joey Weimer, say? Correct. Somebody who's like more of a free swinger. Well, uh, again, it, you. It doesn't. Whether you're a Sal Freelich or a Joey Weimer, the the only way Joey Weimer has success is w- when he was here, <laughs> swung his strikes, right? Right. It's really, really that simple, yeah. from a you know just a, a, a perspective. But standing in that batter's box, it's a little bit different animal. Right. You know what I mean? The the for me personally, I think what happens to guys that swing a lot. All right, is when they stand in there, they're not they're worrying about everything but what's most important. And most importantly, when you stand in a batter's box, it's about you and the ball. Mm. Has zero to do with anything mechanical, okay? Because what you're supposed to do, and all the good ones do it, they prepare in the cage, they have their routines, they get information on the pitcher, and then once they get in there, it's about the ball. Right. Yeah. Because no. it, I know it sounds simple. Right? I mean, it, it, the more you can simplify the game, right? One hundred percent. And 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 again, it, you know, it not only. And I'll take it one step further. When you're hitting the ball, you want to hit the inside part of the ball. Mm-hmm. All right. And when you practice, you want to hit the middle of the ball, basically. Okay. Because to me, it doesn't make any sense when the ball is going at you know, 5, 10, 15, 30 miles an hour right. to practice miss hitting the ball. doesn't make any sense to me. No. Okay? Yeah. So 
with that being said, that's kind of the the kind of the step by step progression of the reason why guys strikeouts go down. Okay. Is because we make the ball the priority. That, there you go. All right, I like that a lot. And how does your role change or your instructions change? Especially when you're talking about the knowledge of the strike zone, when it's defined by ABS. Uh, well, the, you know, that's a very good point. I just had a conversation with uh, with our uh, major league hitting coach, coaches, I should say. It's actually it's an adjustment because the strike zone here in the minor leagues is a lot smaller mm-hmm. than the one in the major leagues, especially up in the strike zone. Mm-hmm. You know, the top of the strike zone here with ABS is like at your belt right and at the major league level it's a little bit higher than it's kind of like the midsection mm-hmm. so to speak the one thing that uh is uh i think in and out down here is a lot wider it's like two and a half inches wider okay because or two inches wider because of the ball because mm-hmm. if it just clips the ball is two inches in diameter if it just clips it Right, that's a strike. Yeah, yeah. So, so instead of 17 inches, it's 19 inches, so to speak. Right. You know what I mean? So, yeah. I mean, those are the. Th- I think it's just an adjustment period. You know, when they go up there, but uh, I mean, strikes are strikes. <laughs> you know what I mean? The ones that are in the middle of home plate, you shouldn't. You should, them. yeah. You should be you swinging at I mean? those regardless. It's the ones at the edges that are a little iffy. You know what I mean? Right. But uh, kind of our mantra: if you can live to see another pitch. You know you're okay. Yeah, you got a shot. Right, exactly. And it, are challenges anything you guys practice? Like no. how does how does that? No, I don't. I, no, I think uh, you know. Quite frankly, I think it's probably a good. It's a. Uh, it's really a good teaching tool. Yeah. In my opinion. Right. All right. Uh, because guys now have to be aware of the strike zone mm-hmm. in order to challenge properly. Right. You see what I mean? Yeah. yeah, yeah so, right. and so I think. From that standpoint, I, I actually think it's pretty good. I think it's really good. Yeah. From that standpoint, because yeah. you know we're trying to create offense, and and offense is uh, dictated by the pitches you swing at. Mm-hmm. So if you know the strike zone and you get pitches to hit, then you can square them up and do what you're supposed to do. Yeah, exactly. And how do you feel like your hitching or your hitting philosophy has it changed over the years as kind of modern hitting practices have changed or? Well, I will say this. I mean, I've been doing it for a long time. And I will honestly tell you that the analytic portion of hitting has made me a better teacher. Okay? Because kind of what happens is is that back in the day, before all this came about, what you did is you relied on your eyes and the body movement of what you what you what you saw yeah. successful hitters do. And then you try to implement that, but if a guy is having an issue with a certain, you know, let's just say uh, a swing path, okay, if he's having an issue with a swing path, now you can go back and get the numbers and and say, oh yeah, your your eyes are telling you what it is, or your eyes are not telling you what it what it is, mm-hmm. and then you can go about uh, fixing it quicker. Right. As opposed to the basically the trial and error process is sh- is a lot shorter mm-hmm. than it used to be. So from that standpoint, I think uh, I think that has made me 
a way better teacher than I used to be. Yeah, it just gives you all sorts of evidence exactly. instead of just your you know, eye test. Trust me that yeah, this is wrong. Well, well, the thing, and the other thing too is that we, you know the the type of players we're dealing with now is there a lot of them are visual learners. Mm. You know what I mean? So you, if you can show them what the issues are mm-hmm. and let them see that see it for themselves, whether it's the the swing and the numbers that coincide with those swings, it makes the transition. Uh, or them getting back to where they need to be a lot quicker. Yeah. Like it gets buy-in. Yeah, and when you're talking about analytics, I know you're talking about swing path, but mm-hmm. when you're looking at specific numbers, are there any particular ones that you gravitate towards of, like, this is when things are going in the right direction? To me, I mean, I think the most important one is uh, exit velocity mm. because I know with all this new age, uh, you know, vertical bat angle and stuff like that, you know, launch angle and stuff like that, mm. Nobody will ever tell me, I don't care how old I am, that a head-high line drive isn't good. <laughs> so if we can do that more times than not and square the ball up, exactly, you're going to do what you want to do. Right. Yeah, balls hit hard are, are going to be yeah. hit See, more often that's than more, not. That, that's right. You yeah. know, and, and that's the only control we have as a hitter is to square the ball up. Because yep. once we hit it, there's no joystick. You can't make it go where you want it to go. It's not Tiger Woods where no, you're spamming no, yeah, the button. That's right. You can't to... hit the X button and yeah. make them uh, fall down or anything like that. So Again, our thanks to Nashville Sounds hitting coach Al LaBeouf for that conversation. I thought it was really insightful, like I said, uh, in the intro section, just because he really went in depth about what he wants guys to be doing, what he wants them to be working on, what he's looking at. And I don't think that's something you always hear. Now, he wasn't completely candid. He said at one point, I'm not going to give you all the answers. And that's, I wouldn't expect him to. I mean, I don't want him to give away all the answers. And all of a sudden, everybody else is striking out less across the board. And uh, everybody else is taking credit for Al techniques. But the fact that he gave the answers that he did, I'm very grateful. Uh, and now, Kelsey, I'm going to pass it on to you because... Obviously, part of the MLB Pipeline Game of the Month is we're not just presenting on-field stuff. There's so much going on in a ballpark at any moment, as the great Ben Hill points out on a daily, weekly, yearly basis. Uh, So we want to bring another interview pointing out some special part of the Nashville Sounds experience, and that's a shandy that they have specific for the ballpark. Yeah, so like a really fun trend that minor league teams are starting to do lately is to partner with breweries and to come up with like a special beer for the stadium, for the team. Um, So I talked to Danielle Gaugh, who's the VP of Corporate Partnership for the Sounds, and Wes Keegan, who's Tailgate Brewing's owner, and they teamed up to do the Nashville Sounds Pink Lemonade Shandy. Um, So it was pretty cool hearing them talk about that. Um, just a little bit of an overview. If you don't know what a shandy is, it's a lemonade and a beer mixed together. So that's what this is. And the can is just this bright, vibrant yellow and pink can that just like, if you look at a fridge, it's going to draw your attention. So it was really cool hearing from them about how they formed this partnership, um, where fans can get this shandy and what it's like. And I'm here with Nashville's awesome. Danielle Gaugh and Tailgate Brewing's Wes Keegan. We're here to talk about the shandy, the pink lemonade shandy, which I have had a taste, I'm not going to lie, and it's delicious. Um, so first of all, when did this partnership start? Officially, the partnership started in 2022. Yes, yes. but we've been trying for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we, we um, I think like pre-COVID we were talking about, yeah. hey, how can we work together? And then obviously a lot of things changed, so um, that kind of paused it. But when we opened up 
our tap room that's connected to the sounds ballpark. It was like, okay, now we have to, now we have to figure this out and let's let's do something cool together. Yeah, um, I guess why? Why? I mean, obviously it seems pretty cool, but why make this connection? Yeah, we were just talking about this. I think Nashville is uh, is all about local. What's cool, what's local, and, and Nashvillians, new and old and natives and transplants all really, um, you know, they, they thrive on that local scene. Um, so I think that was the first thing, and I think nothing is more local in Nashville than beer and baseball. Mm-hmm. And then did you always know you wanted to do a shandy, or did you try a few different options? No. Um, so, I mean, we talk about all of it, right? Yeah. Um, the Sounds do a great job partnering with local businesses, so we're not the only brewery that works with The Sounds. So there's different opportunities, whether it's beer, whether it's seltzer, which we've done last year. This year we wanted to do a shandy. Um, I mean, we make a lot of different types of uh, fermented beverages, I guess you could say. If, you, if it's fermented and if it's alcoholic, we make it. Um, so we had a lot of options. And so it was, hey, let's talk about stuff that works. Let's talk about stuff that sells well. And let's talk about stuff that would sell well in this ballpark. So... We would make it, and then you know we talk with people like Danielle about what's going to help here, because mm-hmm. that's the, that's that's what's important, right? Is what does the guest want? Yeah, what kind of um, adapting do you have to do for the, like a baseball guest versus just in general your fans? I mean, from our perspective, yeah. it's no different than any other place that we want to sell beer. It's we want to find an opportunity that's not already met. You know, I mean, what every major brewery works here. Mm-hmm. Yep. So there's all the big yep. boys that play here. Mm-hmm. There's all the a bunch of the locals that play here. Um, so when we look around, it's like what's not currently being served and what's something that we really like making. We've, we've done the pink lemonade shandy before, and it played well. Yeah, what drew you guys to the pink lemonade shandy? Yeah, I think we talked about something that's refreshing. Um, if you're going to sit in 100-degree humidity weather, um, you know, maybe drinking a, a, a heavy IPA might not be the move. Um, but something re- light, refreshing, uh, makes you think of summertime, makes you think of sitting at a ball game, something you might only be able to get during a certain season. So there's that correlation between baseball season, shandy season. Um, so I think it's worked out really well. Yeah, how would you, I know you guys are both drinking it. How would you describe how it tastes? It tastes exactly like pink lemonade. It's just, it happens to be beer, too. So, I mean, if you were to get, like, pink lemonade off a fountain, it's exactly what it tastes like. Um, but we make it with beer. And that's kind of what a shandy is. A shandy is going to be, most places are going to do almost like a 50-50 split of beer and juice. Is kind of what makes a shandy. Um, and that's kind of what this is. It's mm-hmm. lemonade and beer. Is it a 50-50? It's a little bit. It's one. It's a little bit more one than the other. Um but it's pretty close. I mean, it's yeah. shandy is kind of like the style, and then like most things in American craft beer, like we're not too stylistically uh, dedicated to living on that line. So it just kind of varies. And what we do is like we'll start with what the style is, and then we try to vary it to to taste. So okay. if it, if we did a hard fifty fifty and we said, hey, that doesn't taste right, then we start adjusting. Yeah. And how did you guys come up with the label? Um, well, this one, I mean, easy. We what we wanted to do was so we have an in house artist um, for our team. Um, and then we worked with the, with the sounds, and we started just saying, hey, this is our take. What's your feedback? Um, most of our labels have the truck, which is our brand, and then we kind of put things in the back of it or stuff like that. And so we just wanted it to be simple. We wanted it to represent what they are. We wanted the sounds guests to know that this is something that is working with the sounds. So if you're at a sounds game, this is part of the environment and part of the activity. Um, so we do a lot of these and a lot of different types of labels all the time that are available in our brewery. So it's just kind of like the normal process for us. But we got to do it with with the sounds this time. I think it only took one revision, maybe. Yeah. I think 
like we have a you know keeper of the brand and she saw it the first time i think we made one small change and it was good to go so luckily super fun super fun brand to work with they do crazy outside of the box looking labels and it was a little bit different um from something we've done but still within our style guidelines which was important to us yeah the, the colors really pop the pink and the, pink the yellow is nice, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the pink is nice yeah and when it's in a fridge you really you just go for oh it. yeah it, it, it catches it, your eye it does and like you yeah. said with the baseball and yep. lemonade that's a very common connection even better yeah yeah um what have been the fans reaction to it oh they love it yeah i mean i think it's it's pushing really well um you know we i see people in cans the bright pink can when you see it you see it so um you know we're a little over halfway through the season and um we haven't stopped buying it hopefully you guys keep yeah. stocking it <laughs> yeah and, and the cool thing too is that like when we did this before it was not like we do a lot of r&d so like we've done this before and people have tasted it so like they knew that this was a good product that we yeah. did and then it was now we can take some gas to it and partner with the with the sound so um, the liquid is good, so the branding does a lot of the heavy lifting. And then once they taste it, it's like, okay, that this is really them, good. Keeps them coming back. Yeah, for sure. so, so the, it's done exactly what we want, right? Yeah. That's what you make a product for something like this. You can have more than one, or you can have it with your friends. Mm-hmm. And and the sales have been good. The poultry has been good. The branding, the opportunity, all that kind of stuff's been really rewarding. Mm-hmm. And what's the alcohol percentage on it? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, my <laughs> so my my job <laughs> is very um, in advance. Three and a half. Three and a half. Okay, yeah. so yeah, you could definitely have multiple. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not too heavy. You with the pace of play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It all in, yeah. and, and that is very shandy esque. Like yeah. it's okay. most shandies are going to be pretty low, um, low alcohol content. But but for me, I mean, I do more of the recipe writing. Mm-hmm. So by the time the recipe's been done and it goes to production, I have no idea anymore. Like percentage <laughs> is just out there. Yeah, you don't care. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm on to the next one. We made 300 unique beers last year. Wow. So there's a lot of there's a lot of that kind of stuff going through. Yeah, I think the brand association when people look for something cool mm-hmm. and trusted in the craft beer scene. They think tailgate. Um, so our association with them of when someone opens a fridge to grab one, they see sounds tailgate. There's already that brand recognition. Mm-hmm. So marrying those brands together, I think there's a lot of trust um, with the product. Um, so people aren't scared to go try it because either they've tasted it before or they're like, I like all the tailgates beer. So I'm going to go grab that. Mm-hmm. I know you've done a beer in the past with yeah. Kolsch, um, but does this make you want to start doing more partnerships and more beers? Yeah, I think we, you know, we, Wes and I talked about this, but doing one a year, and I think yeah. if you oversaturate the market and you have 14 different sounds beers, it makes it just a little less special. So mm-hmm. picking one and really championing that one. Um, we've done a ton of social content and uh, video content around creating the beer. We did a release of um his crew uh, hitting lemons with a bat as like a tease. Um, so really just building out one idea of like how can we launch this, how can we continue to push it rather than having 16 different SKUs that we're trying to educate the fans and tell people about. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, where can fans find this? Uh, in the stadium, uh, we have it in mm-hmm. the uh, twice daily grab and go market, the Kroger market, um, which are new trends for us. Just walk in, grab a beer, pay for it and go. Um, other select locations around uh, the ballpark and at tailgate, you can answer that. Yeah, all of our tailgate locations. We have six locations, including the one that's connected to the ballpark, Tailgate Brewery Germantown. So you can get it coming into the ballpark, and then you can get it in the ballpark. Mm-hmm. And then you touched on this a little bit earlier, but why is it important to have this local beer? You know, obviously you can get you know the national brands everywhere, but why is this special? Yeah, I think just set back to that locality of like people love having something local. They love supporting local. Um, I think Tailgate. I mean, I'll go on record and say I think it's Nashville's most popular craft brewery. And I hope a, you're right. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. In a in a really yeah. uh, in a really you know somewhat crowded space. So mm-hmm. being able to you know step out of that and say we are partnering with them, and then they're offering it in the um, their tap rooms as well. So that's. Mm-hmm soon to be seven tap rooms so that's good marketing for us it's like yeah. when fans go to tailgate they're getting a little bit of sounds branding um and sounds interaction as well so 
Yeah, that makes sense that, you know, they might come for the beer and then stay for the baseball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and they have these really cool boards with, like, chalkboards, and they ride on them. They always, like, they make them really cute. They put, like, a baseball on it. They'll put sounds. So um, it's just those little touch points. I think you guys have done some tap handles before. Um, Just little touch points like that that people tend to remember more than a big billboard or a big, um, you know, big production. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what kind of tap heads do they have? So we make all of our tap handles in-house. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, what she's talking about with, like, the chalkboards where we put on our draft wall, mm-hmm. um, the team actually makes those. And so it'll be people from, like, the bartenders to the cooks to the brewers or whoever. Um, they'll go do those chalkboards, whoever's a little bit artsy. Mm-hmm. So they get involved. They, they start talking about it. Maybe they haven't been to a game. They want to come to a game. So they, we'll do that kind of stuff. And then the tap handles are kind of a little bit um, – template but then we can get artistic on like what the the front or um the sides look like too okay cool yeah um well that sounds awesome is there anything else you guys want to add about it i don't think so no no i mean i think i think that the fun thing about this is that um danielle and the sounds have been really smart about the question that you were asking about like why the shandy and any others so the cool thing about this beer is like this works and it works right now and craft beer changes all the time but if it were to ever not work we're working with a good partner that's going to say, hey, let's do something different that, that is working now because trends change and tastes change and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes this kind of part uh, this kind of partnership fun. All right, so that was great to hear about the Nashville Sounds Pink Lemonade. Shandy, if you're in the area, if you are going to a Sounds game, and, and I can't stress this part enough, if you are of age, if you are 21 and over, because the show before the show officially, for anybody listening out there, uh, does not endorse underage drinking, or breaking the law in any f- official capacity. Uh, if you are of age, please enjoy that drink and let us know what you think. Like, you know, this is a series that we are doing on MILB.com about beers and other beverages that are specific to the ballpark. Um, so we're bringing one, one to you guys in audio form this week, but you can read more about these. Uh, it's a series called Draft Picks. Uh, on MILB.com, so search that out for other ones. And if you know of one in your local ballpark, you know, post it in the comments. Let us know on Twitter. Um, I'm at Sam Dykstra, MILB. Kelsey Hennigan is at Kelsey underscore Hennigan. Uh, at Tyler Mon, at Ben's Biz, at Josh Jackson, MILB. Tweet any of us, and we'll, we'll make sure it gets to the right people. Um, but before we end this part of the program, uh, Kelsey, any final thoughts on our time in Nashville? I know there was one thing left that you did not get to do, which is almost the sign of a good trip. Like there was so much that we did get to do, but there's one thing that you didn't get to do. Yeah. I mean, you need meat left on the bones. Um, well, not meat in this, not, not me in this scenario, but one of the things that we saw on the menu while we were ordering our dinner, I got a pimento hot dog. It was great, but I also happened to notice a popcorn ice cream. And if you know me, my Two of my favorite things are popcorn and ice cream. And every night at 8 o'clock when I was in high school, I would have one of those things. So the fact that they were in the same thing, that seemed amazing. We did not get a chance to have it, unfortunately. But I, So I still don't know if it was popcorn-flavored ice cream, if it was popcorn-topped ice cream. But, yeah, next time. Next time I'll have to check it out. I think my one thing left on the board is I did get a Nashville Sounds hat. It has... It, it has a little bit, it's not like their traditional hat with the N on it. It has some notes on it. Basically, it looks like the ends of it are two musical notes, which is a nice touch for a team named The Sounds. But they also have this alt logo 
of a guy swinging a, a guitar as if it's a bat, which comes to mind the idea of a banjo hitter. And if you don't know what a banjo hitter is, it's somebody who doesn't have much power. So it might not be the best visual, but it works really, really well. It has this real 70s aesthetic to it. Um, they have it on shirts. They have it on a patch on the side for some of their retro throwback jerseys. Um, they, I would love it on a hat. They didn't really have it on a hat, but I... If I could go back, I would have gotten something with that logo on it just because it fits this town so well and it fits the vibe they're really going for with the sound. So that just means we have to come back at some point. And considering how well the Nashville Sounds have treated us as part of the MLB Pipeline Game of the Month, uh, happily do so uh, at some point in the future. I mean, there are so many minor league towns to get to. We're not all Ben's biz. We're all... We all haven't been to all 119 stadiums. Uh, we're trying. We're trying as best we can, uh, especially through this Game of the Month initiative. But lots left to do. But for now, this is us signing off from Nashville. Thank you, Nashville. Thank you, Sounds, for everything you did for us. If you have a chance, make it down here to First Horizon Park. Uh, I'm sure you'll have a great time. So thank you, Kelsey, for all your help uh, this weekend. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. And uh, we'll catch you guys at the ballpark another time. this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. Welcome back to Ghosts of the Miners, in which all of you out there in radio land must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One once toiled on the diamond. The others are trying to spoil your guess. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The Ocala Old Timers. B. The Lake Erie Seniors. C. The Dayton Veterans. You've been around the block once or twice if you picked C, the Dayton veterans, who experienced more than 15 miners' campaigns starting in the 1890s and stretching into the new century. Some years, the Dayton veterans were called the Dayton Old Soldiers, and some years the Dayton Old Soldiers were called the Dayton Veterans. But putting up a fight over a team's name during an era when lots of clubs didn't even have an official moniker would be an unwinnable battle. The Dayton team seems to have gotten its name, or rather, its names, because of the Ohio City standing as the site of the central branch of the National Asylum for Disabled Volunteer Soldiers, which dates to the years immediately following the American Civil War, and, while much evolved, still exists today as the Dayton Veterans Affairs Medical Center. The original facility included a zoo and lushly landscaped walking grounds, which made it something of a tourist attraction in the Miami Valley, even for those who had no connection to an old soldier in need of care. The old soldiers of the ball field were in relatively robust health, however. In the Interstate League of 1897, Dayton went 74-51, getting an astounding 17 homers out of Joe Ryman and enjoying the performance of Elmer Flick. He's now in the Hall of Fame. You can look him up. 
but lost the best of seven playoffs in six games to the Toledo Mudhens, who'd finished eight and a half games ahead of the second place Old Soldiers and 43 and a half games ahead of the last place Wheeling Nailers, whose franchise was awarded to Dayton manager Frank Torreson mid-season when the Wheeling players went on strike on account of not being paid. That was a clever enough trick, but the old soldiers wisened up even more in 1898, taking the pennant from Toledo by a half a game and once again getting double-digit dingers from Ryman. Torreson had been replaced at the helm in August of the preceding season, but the old soldiers were well fortified with Bill Armour as their manager, all the way not only through 1900 when they took their second interstate league crown in three seasons, but also continuing to wear old Armour out as they transitioned into the Western Association and finished second place in 1901. Armour moved on to manage the Cleveland Broncos of the American League as they signed Nap Lajawe in 1902, then was at the helm of the Tigers when they bought a kid off the Augusta Taurus by the name of Ty Cobb. But even without their armor, the Dayton veterans proved durable. Moving into the Central League in 1903 and winning a couple more pennants, including one in 1911 under the management of the legendary Punch Knoll, through the 1917 season. America's involvement in the Great War, ironically, played a big part in putting the veterans out of business, along with the rest of the Central League. Throughout the off-season of 1718, executives from several leagues met to discuss mergers and other measures to keep ball clubs staffed with quality players and the bleachers stuffed with paying fans. But by March of 18, it was clear the Central League was too costly to carry on. And that's how the veterans laid down their arms. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these hybrid clubs bred wild times in the miners of yesteryear? A. The Elkhart Eagle Eyes. B. The Beaver Falls Bees. C. The Caribou Bear Cubs. Want to know the answer? Couple up or tune in to the next Ghost of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer, Ben Hill, is being bullied by Johnny Weissmuller, and he's about to go in. Big thanks, as always, to uh, crowd favorite, live theater audience favorite, Josh Jackson. You can hear the, the deafening ovation as it swells to a crescendo and fades out so beautifully every week on goes the miners milb.tv is where you can catch the best and brightest in minor league baseball we've got our picks for you for that this week but before uh we tell you what to tune into uh we've also got the hottest promo of the week and for that we turn to our uh our stalwart intrepid reporter benjamin hill yeah our friend josh jackson is currently on the summit of maine's mount katahdin um yelling from the peak about formerly active minor league teams. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go to a locale that's not as uh, exotic or dramatic as where our friend Josh is right now, but a classic international league location, Buffalo, New York, home of the Bisons. Saturday, July 29th is, as I'm sure you know, National Chicken Wing Day. So for the first time since 2019, the Buffalo Bisons are playing as, you guessed it, the Buffalo Wings and those hats and jerseys are they they're flats. So even though they're playing as the Wings, 
the flats, the flat portion of the wing is no no flat. drumsticks. Yeah, that's no drumsticks. That's what we're. Yeah, uh, they've got they've got the flat aesthetic uh, playing as the wings, and uh, I mean it's Buffalo. You know, there's a lot of history with Buffalo and its wings. Uh, the Buffalo Bisons. Uh, I'm not sure if they still do, but for years they hosted uh, the national like Buffalo Wing Festival at the ballpark for years and years. You know, they have a, a between inning mascot race. Uh, Celery finally won and retired, I believe. But there's you know you got racing wings and racing uh, dressings and racing who knows what else. Uh, so it'll be a day of Buffalo Wing celebration, and where else? Buffalo, New York, Saturday, July 29th. All right, Sam, uh, MILB.TV, what are you watching this week? Yeah, I, I obviously talked a lot about the Brewer system today, the fact that this is, you know, we were in Nashville last week. Um, and I'm going to keep that going with the free MLB TV or MILB TV game of the week, or game of the day, I should say, on Sunday, is between Birmingham and Biloxi. Bluxy Shuckers being the Brewers double A affiliate. You heard in my interview before with Rick Sweet, um, I asked him about like, you know, when do you expect Jackson Churio, Jefferson Caro, uh, Tyler Black to be up? Jacob Misarowski just got to double A. I don't think he's going to be in triple A anytime soon, but that group of three position players, they're all knocking on the door. And the Brewers went through a line change last year in Rick Sweet's own words of bringing up multiple talented guys at once, keeping that core together. They have another one there. In Biloxi, Caro's on the IL right now. It doesn't sound like it was that worrisome. Uh, hearing from Mook Sweet the other day, it sounded like they were a little worried, but it's not going to be a long-term issue. Uh, but Churio and Black, Churio's had a fantastic month of July. Black consistently gets on base, consistently steals bases, uh, and is continuing his transition to third base. So those two guys are definitely worth watching. Biloxi against Birmingham on Sunday. You can watch that game for free on MLB.com slash pipeline. Tyler, what are you watching? I am uh, going to maybe the most star-studded matchup of the weekend, and that is on Saturday as Double-A Bowie squares off with Double-A Somerset. Uh, two of the most notable prospects in all of baseball, number one overall talent, Jackson Holiday, the first overall pick last year, and uh, he and his Baltimore Orioles organizational teammates at Double-A will be taking on Jason Dominguez in the Somerset Patriots, a Double-A affiliate of the New York Yankees. Jason Dominguez, obviously the, I don't want to say the shine has worn off of Jason Dominguez by any stretch. But uh, the things have been, I think, tempered somewhat uh, with uh, the guy known as the Martian. He is now number 41 overall uh, in MLB Pipeline's prospect rankings, but a guy who still has an absurd skill set and uh, and ceiling. And he's only 20 years old. Um, so you can watch two of the most exciting talents in all of baseball on MILB.TV coming up this weekend. And uh, that'll do it for this week's episode of the show before the show. A huge thanks again to Lauren Meyer, the other boys of summer.com uh, for her documentary film, uh, which has already been recognized and honored with, uh, with awards and uh, all kinds of great platitudes and recommendations and reviews. And a uh, huge thanks to everybody from Nashville who joined us as well for uh, the show before the show podcast for Benjamin Hill and Sam Dykstra. My name is Tyler Mon, and we'll catch you next week.